Today we are talking to Professor Claire Jackson, who was RACGP president from 2010 to 2012. Welcome, Claire. Thank you very much for the opportunity. First of all, I'd like to ask you if you can describe your own leadership journey and how that has unfolded. Uh, You have significant experience, so we would love to hear about it. Well, thank you, and and I would love to say it was all very well planned, but um, as in many things in life, things just sort of uh, fell in or fell out of of the program. Mm. So um, I was lucky enough to have one of the very first academic registrar positions, which was a fantastic learning experience, blending my clinical work with teaching, which I love, but also the first taste of research, which I had always discounted, but then I became completely hooked. Um, and I was very involved on the College's Education Committee in Queensland, which was very active um, and gave me a really wide experience of our members and uh, also then on the Research Committee as well. Um, and in 2000, um, the opportunity came to take an honorary position as chair of the faculty and I was encouraged by some of my colleagues to do that. <clears throat> and that gave me some very... Um, easy entry, I guess, into getting some experience in partnership between our GP members and our staff and getting an understanding of staff issues and strengths and conflicts, etc., and how to manage those. Mm. Um, Also, a little bit of a taste of strategy, how how you could start planning for an organisation forward um, and be proactive rather than reactive, Um, and also gave me a touch of advocacy, Mm -hmm. uh, which I absolutely loved, uh, selling, I guess, uh, the wonders of general practice and and its impact on communities um, to a much broader audience um, and getting to know people and build networks. Uh, And then in 2001, the college started heading into very troubled waters. Mm. And as chair, I had large numbers of members ringing me very angry Mm -hmm. um, for the first time, saying they didn't want to be part of an organisation that was politicising itself, that was really um, turning its back on its core values around training, education standards, uh, and really trying to become a political organisation. And I guess in anger, um, I stood for the position that came up in 2001, which was for the first time a combined position between the chair of the faculty and um, the Queensland College Council rep and director on the national board. Okay. And I was lucky enough to win that election yep. um, and come on to the board in 2001. Um, and within three months, of arrival, I'd noticed a very, very heavy level of division on the board, um, such that I would never have experienced previously, nor have expected, mm-hmm. um, to the extent that um, members of the board were wanting to sue other members. Oh, okay. uh, it was very difficult as a new councillor to work out what was right, what was wrong. Um, I had no... Uh, really track record or corporate memory to go by. I didn't know many of the people um, that were on the board. Um, And within three months, we were told that the college would be returning a $4 million deficit for Mm -hmm. the year, which within five months had become $8 million. And within uh, seven months was then 11, um, nearly $11 And that was really way 
over our current assets and um, we started meeting uh, at each board board meeting discussing whether we were trading insolvent. So it was a pretty horrendous experience for someone quite inexperienced to find themselves in. Yes. And uh, they talk about the crucible of leadership. Well, wow, uh, I was in certainly meltdown and and rebuild over that period of time. Mm. But um, it taught me very much about good governance and when good governance falls down, you end up with a horrendously long, tortuous and wearing trip back to where you started. Mm-hmm. It also taught me how extraordinary members of our college are. We had members with um, experience in finance and business just volunteering to give their experience to us um, during a really difficult time. Um, our membership was 30% of what it had been the year before and it was our main uh, cash flow mm-hmm. and trying to build that membership was a real challenge and it also taught me you need the right people in the right roles and that's what we endeavoured to do over the six to 12 months uh, between 2000 and, uh, late 2001, late 2002 um, and we, re- we, we rebuilt. Um, we went each week, our chair of finance, to meet the Commonwealth Bank to explain how we were going to turn things around, gain their confidence. We really worked the people um, mm. inside the organisation and outside. And uh, to go back as president in 2010 and see the enormous assets the college had managed to rebuild over that period of time was just a wonderful sense of um, pride and thanks to those people that took enormous risk over that time. Yes, yes. Absolutely. And that sounds incredible. I mean, over a 10-year period to see that unfold. Um, I, I, yeah. and, uh, and it really, I think, sometimes we learn those painful lessons and remember them for five years or so. But I think one of the opportunities with this interview today is just to be talking to the leaders of the future around the importance of good governance, mm. knowing exactly what's happening in the organisation, transparency, and also to have the right people in the right roles, people with the skills and experience to really be able to deliver. Um, we all love the college and we're all well-meaning on those boards, but I think the, the board um, that had been making some of the risky decisions uh, were really people who were great GPs and great clinicians, but really completely out of their depth, and mm. we never want to see that happen again. Mm. Mm. So given the scale of that challenge that that you experienced and saw transformation in, and then the one that exists in reforming health systems, um, why did that become your area of focus, reforming health systems? Yeah, so that's been a really long burn. Um, So I got most interested in that actually as a registrar and a new fellow, uh, where um, I suddenly realised quite painfully that I could be the best clinician in the world but if the system wasn't offering up to my patients what they needed, yes. then we were going to come up with the best outcome for that patient. And like many um, members of the college, I used to spend hours on phones, you know, pleading, begging for services for my patients, particularly mm. those in very um, disadvantaged areas uh, that really just were completely reliant on a system that was quite disconnected from general practice. Mm. Um, Health services research was completely unsexy then. Mm. It was something that no one was really interested in. And uh, I always talk about the randomised control 
trial evidence being the Joan of Arc, all white and in golden light, and health <laughs> research much more like Lara Croft, leaping from exploding buildings <laughs> and uh, collapsing platforms to something in safety to keep you going to the next uh, to the next hurdle. Yes. And I love that. I love the chaos of it, but mm. also the reality mm. of it. And the fact that if you could get it right, if you could imagine much better systems using your skills as a GP and then uh, deliver them in partnership, evaluate them and implement them, you could really make massive differences at the practice level for thousands of patients rather than just your own. And so I guess that became a bit of um, the fire in my belly and uh, we were very, very lucky with the sort of partners we uh, we formed over those early years and then to have uh, two centres of research excellence um, for five years uh, from 2010 to 2015 really managed to allow us to drive a lot of really exciting research forward. Fantastic. And and so in terms of the centres of excellence, did that include the, the workforce research that was done? So we... The, Two centres, one was an NHMRC, mm-hmm. a Centre of Research Excellence around integrated care, um, taking some of the innovative models we used to really improve outcomes for patients with complex chronic disease. And we showed uh, hugely improved clinical outcomes, um, a 50% reduction in the cost of care and really high uh, access and patient satisfaction rates. And then the other... Um, Centre for Research Excellence was looking very much at building quality in primary care. Yes. I think we all know that some practices offer extraordinary quality of care. Mm. Others are really struggling with accreditation and trying to build the teams and the infrastructure yes. to really deliver their best mm. and the opportunity to work with practices across the whole spectrum and to build, uh, we call it the PCPIT, the Primary Care Practice Improvement Tool that the practices can use to um, build their ability to accredit but also prepare themselves the healthcare home and the vision for general practice the future the college had laid out while I was president um, has been really exciting. See that research really start to deliver now across primary health networks as well as with individual practices uh, has been incredibly exciting. Fantastic. And so what are the key lessons you learned as a leader by defining and implementing new models of care? So I think across all of that, um, the importance of clear communication uh, and continued communication. A friend of mine said, when you feel that your ears are bleed because you've said it so many times to so many people, <laughs> uh, people are just starting to tune in and pick it up. So yes. I think looking at all opportunities to communicate with members, both the message around what the organisation thinks is really important or you think is really important, but listening back at, well, why members don't think that that would work for them, uh, their problems with implementing or thinking about that, getting that two-way street and real respect for people in lots of different settings, uh, having permission to disagree um, to challenge and uh, to allow you to go back and improve the intervention you're working on or thinking of it um, because of that input. Mm. And so that really the vision you have becomes a real collaboration across people and across the organisations, memberships, 
uh, diverse sectors rather than just your own personal philosophy. So mm. I think that's what I've learned. So that in health services research, when all the wheels fall off, someone changes policy and suddenly the whole research direction uh, is under threat. It's those collaborations with people who can see a way through that will always guide you through to often being able to improve what you thought you might be able to do rather than lose years' worth of hard work. I think it also taught me the importance of a unifying vision, being quite clear what everyone is signing on to and what everyone wants, wants out of a research initiative or out of a college policy, uh, and not just cavalierly rolling on because you think it's a good idea um, pushing across other people's boundaries. I think yes. really make sure everyone's on board the bus mm -hmm. because otherwise, inevitably, you're going to burn a lot of time, a lot of money and a lot of goodwill and mm -hmm. you may not have the chance to go back and do that again. So making sure that everyone's on board the bus. Um, I think you need to be really resilient as a leader. Having said all of that, um, the wheels will fall off. That's, you should expect that rather than be shocked by that. Yes. And you need to be flexible. And people will look to you as the leader to give them indication of where things might go and to give them comfort that there is a way forward. And you must always be looking for that way forward, be flexible, be innovative around what you might be able to keep from a strategy or an intervention that isn't going well, um, but how you might be able to future-proof it, build it and improve it. Um, and I think the final thing about leadership is just the joy of partnership. I've been really lucky in all the interventions that I've been involved in leadership roles to have really skilled partners who are flexible, who really care and share the vision that I do. Mm. Uh, and in those very dark times such as 2001 when I was going to bed every night thinking that the college I loved might go bankrupt on my watch, Yes, um, there were great people who stepped forward and who shared and cared and loved the college as much as I did, who had skills that were complementary to mine and that allowed us to really um, turn around the oil tanker. Hmm. And uh, that, so the joy of working with those people was something I'll take away from the leadership positions I've had over the last 20 years. So in um, seeking out people with complementary skills, um, how difficult did you find that? Because did you, did you find that... Um, in amongst the dissenters, you found people who became allies um, as a result of recognising that different skill set. Um, I'm just thinking about how, how challenging yeah. that can be from a systems level perspective as a leader and then yeah. suddenly to realise, oh, I have a gap yeah. there. So I think there are situations where, so to start with the first one, where you're stuck in a really difficult position that you had no role in creating or shaping and you, and you need to turn it around. Mm. It is looking for um, the right people who were there but maybe in the wrong position. Okay. Um, and so one of the major things we did um, as we were turning the um, college around and um, needing to get our membership, needing to get people with skills, is Michael Kidd came in as our president. Yes. And Michael was the most trustworthy, believable, uh, a person that what you saw was what you were going to get, the highest ethical standards. So members trusted him mm. as our president. 
And then uh, we had one of our board members who had significant financial skills mm -hmm. and uh, I don't. I can't thank David Thompson enough uh, as we were recording the greatest deficit ever in the history of the college. He took on the Director of Finance mm -hmm. and uh, flew across to Melbourne every week to work with the banks. Um, I became the Chair of Council because I potentially had the people skills to try and bring people together in a way that we haven't had before. We didn't have a chair of council previously and we split the role of president to an external facing presidential role and an internal facing chair role that actually dealt with the governance issues okay. um, and, and really the teamwork on the board mm. and I was identified to be the person who might uh, take on that role and, and that really meant I had to learn a lot, read a lot and, and really focus on building my skills in that role and letting the others work the other problems. Mm -hmm. And then, as I said, we had uh, Philip Hegarty, who was a member who lived in Melbourne, who had an MBA and a lot of um, management level skills, uh, who stepped up. We didn't have funding for a CEO. Uh, we stood down our CEO and he just said, I'll stay long enough to help you um, get the ship back on the um, sailing straight again. And I don't expect to be paid for any of the work I do. Yeah. Um, you know, just extraordinary stuff. Mm. And um, so so that was a situation where we were sort of not stuck, but we had particular people and we're in a particular capacity, we had to move them around. Um, looking at the other side of things from CREs and from other work, if I'm wanting to prosecute um, a particular vision or direction, then I want working with me the people who have got the right skills to be able to partner in that. Yes. And so um, they would be people with particular knowledge in the context. I always try to have someone in the team who's got a consumer focus or really understands what the reality of this is at the community or patient or carer level mm -hmm. because that's the guiding light. And we always have someone who's in active general practice or active um, outpatients or active ED because they can give us an idea of the context around what's really happening in that setting to guide us with the right sort of approach. Mm. Okay. And so you mentioned about um, consumer focus and what I've noticed in working in healthcare in the past um, relatively short amount of time, past um, 12 years, is as the larger organisations grow, the greater the need is to bring in consumer engagement specialists. What's your thought around that? Yes, and it has been a challenging one because mm. um, you, a particular consumer has huge responsibilities to be able to represent potentially thousands of people with a particular condition or with a particular uh, focus. Mm. We try and use as much as possible in our research consumers who would be experiencing the particular model of care that we're interested in. So yes. if it's a chronic disease focus, we really want to work with people with a chronic disease. We often work with patient advocates um, from a hospital setting because they get to experience a lot of the system-related issues that mm. uh, patients and their families will confront. Um, and we do quite a lot of qualitative work in the work we do. So we interview, um, we have focus groups of patients or carers, 
so that we really get that granular connection around well, what what are the real barriers, what are the real enablers. Yes. Um, and, and so we try and make it um, as real as possible mm. so that we absolutely know we're dealing with the issues that we're trying to solve um, or trying to strengthen in the particular setting in which we're working. Mm. And so... With that systems view and the need to switch up and down to a certain extent between what's what's happening in um, day-to-day life and then taking that big picture view, how do you remain resilient in the face of challenges you experience as a leader? Mm. Um, and, and it is, for those who are listening, who are looking at this, it is a fantastic uh, challenge, but also something gives you enormous satisfaction. So you become a bit of, I, I know I'm a change junkie, my kids call me that all the time. <laughs> You're always looking to, well, how could this be done better? How could we improve this? How could our patients get a better deal? Um, so I think in terms of um, leadership positions in volatile situations, which everyone listening to this podcast will, I imagine, be thinking about, mm. um, Know that, as I said before, hiccups are inevitable. That's that's part of the journey and be relaxed about that. Don't get emotional. I used to get terribly emotional to start with that. Well, you know, this would be a threat. What what if we lose all of this? need to step back, be calm, look at all the data you've got, look at what's really happening, look at some solutions that might work across a win-win-win with diverse stakeholders, but who still really, at the end of the day, want patients and Australians to get a better deal in health. Yes. And I find whenever I get into contentious situations, very volatile meetings or negotiations, um, and we used to laugh in the olden days of trying to get the Commonwealth and state governments together was a bit like being in Beirut. So <laughs> with a lot of spark um, in the room, if we actually focused back into what's best for patients, what's best for our communities, let's make that our guiding, um, then how would we reapproach this problem that we have? And so I think good leaders need to be really good facilitators and those sorts of skills about bringing people with diverse and very passionate views together to look at what can be achieved and, and be... Um, not too ambitious to start with, maybe starting with very small goals just to give people a success together and building from that yes. rather than expecting everyone's going to be on the same page. Mm. Um, always play the ball and not the man. So look at the broader issue rather than the person who's trying to block that situation and um, respecting people and, and their views, trying to understand their context and why that view might be why they're, uh, what's being expressed today and then try and get behind that and think, well, actually, maybe we could do it a different way which would respect that person's position mm. but allow them to move a bit further towards where we need them to be. Uh, and again, good teamwork all these sorts of difficult negotiations, having a good wingman was really essential. Someone who could take a slightly different approach. I mean, we all laugh about the good cop, bad cop. Yes. Um, I often, in leadership positions, would have to be the bad cop. Yes. But sometimes I got to be the good cop as well. <laughs> and it is just having someone who can float a slightly different perspective on the issue you're trying to prosecute 
uh, very important. It goes back to that teamwork I mentioned before mm. and good preparation. Leaders don't just walk in and expect everything to fall into place. Um, I was taught many years ago about the meeting before the meeting. So if I have something that's a very, very important stakeholder meeting coming up, I'll often ring all the individual stakeholders ahead of time and just say, look, we've got a meeting, I'm facilitating this. What are the issues that you're really passionate about and that you really want to see coming out of this meeting? And then I've got eight different contexts I can think over before we go into the meeting. It allows me then to be trying to draw on the strengths of position and unity rather than focusing on the challenges and gives me some time to think through how we might best get a successful outcome. Mm, absolutely. Okay. And so... Thinking forward, what do you believe is essential for the future of general practice? So I think we're in a really interesting position at the moment. Uh, so the positive at the moment is I think the college has put out a very good vision for the future of general practice. Mm -hmm. um, our presidential task force started that between 2010 and 2012 and had a lot of member engagement and feedback and subsequently we've had um, some refining of that and that document came out about 18 months ago. About the same time the Primary Healthcare Advisory Group uh, described its healthcare home which um, was one of 15 recommendations um, that they made to the Council of Australian Governments and all of them were accepted and put into our current health policy. Mm -hmm. uh, the other 14 recommendations were very much around how critical general practice is as the cornerstone or centre stone for our healthcare system going forward. And I think although policy moves very slowly, those drivers will really set general practice up to be where it was in the 70s, which was the absolute undisputed centre of the healthcare universe. Mm. We need our general practitioners sharing that vision, we need our patients sharing that vision, and we need the policy holders uh, and pol policy makers sharing that vision. And that's really where we are at the moment in a very challenging situation. Uh, the department, in their wisdom, have taken a particular approach to trialling the healthcare home, uh, which is really the antithesis of the advice they were given by all external stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And so the whole of that model is struggling a bit at the moment. Yeah. I think that uh, having listened to the minister recently and spoken with him, that the government is still very focused on the vision for general practice that the profession had five years ago. Uh, they just really need to articulate it and funded in a very different way to the way they've been uh, currently. So I think my message to the potential leaders listening is get in, get your hands dirty, read uh, around the policy documentation around general practice, speak to not only college members, members and, and leaders in primary health networks, the AMA, uh, Rural Doctors Association, consumer groups, Get your head around what all those people are looking for in general practice in the next 10 years uh, and really be quite clear on what the college uh, stands for, what its role should be and how you might advocate and prosecute that as leaders uh, in quite diverse settings across the country. 
Fantastic. Well, that is um, some great advice for the leaders on our program who uh, are all looking at um, various aspects of, of their role locally and, and nationally in leadership development. So thank you very much for sharing your wisdom and your experiences with us today. Not Claire. at all, Vicky. I'm delighted to, and I'm really happy to follow up with any of those potential or current leaders uh, who are listening to this podcast uh, around any of those issues. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Claire. Take care. Bye now.